All right. Well, good morning, church. If you are new here today, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at our church. And uh, I want to begin today by saying hello to our High Point family. Uh, and so if you are part of our East Memphis campus that is being streamed in right now, or perhaps you are a part of our church at home campus, uh, regardless, or maybe you are a part of our Carvel campus. I haven't been at Carvel for a while, and so it's so good to be here with you uh, this morning. Um, regardless of how you are connecting with us today, uh, we just want you to know that we are so glad you are here. Now, this morning, we are in the seventh week of our multiple week series uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, our passage today comes to us from Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to please turn to Matthew chapter 5. Um, and we are going to be looking at verses 33 through 37. Matthew 5, 33 through 37. And if you are able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform, everyone say perform, to the Lord what you have sworn. Everyone say sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes, everyone say yes, or no, everyone say no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, we thank you for the fact that in your grace and in your sovereignty, we have been allowed to have the words of Jesus here in this sermon, the greatest sermon that was ever preached. And as we address this topic of oaths, I pray that you would help me, uh, that you would fill me, that you would lead me, and that you would keep me from saying anything that does not come from you. Jesus, we are so grateful that your word is sufficient. And so I pray that you would help me not to take away from it or to add to it, but that you would help me to clearly explain it and unpack it for your honor and for your glory. Jesus, go before us. Holy Spirit, fill me, fill this place. And I pray that what happens here over the next several minutes would be for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. All right, so this morning what we're going to do is uh, we are going to be looking at this passage, uh, Matthew 5, 33 through 37, uh, under three headings. So we are going to begin by looking at the breaking of oaths, then we are going to look at the making of oaths, and then we are going to conclude by looking at the keeping of oaths. But I want to begin today by looking at the breaking of oaths. And to do that, I want to reread to you some of the verses that I just read in order to set the stage for this next section. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So what we see here in this first section is we see the breaking of oaths. Now, to fully understand and appreciate what Jesus is talking to us about, this, this whole concept of oaths, I believe we have to go back and, and, and kind of look at some of the, the background, some of the context for why Jesus even brings this topic up. First of all, here's what I need you to understand. And this is something that I'm pretty sure Pastor Parker has mentioned here at Carville. I haven't had a chance to mention this at East Memphis yet. But the reality is, is that Jesus, throughout this whole sermon, when he starts with, you have heard that it was said, he's not quoting scripture, okay? See, one of the mistakes that we can make is it almost comes off like Jesus is changing the Old Testament. But whenever Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he quotes it in one of two ways. He either says, as Moses said, or as David said, so he quotes the specific person that he's quoting, 
Or he says, it is written. So anytime Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, he makes sure we know that he is quoting the Old Testament. But Jesus isn't quoting the Old Testament because he says, you have heard that it was said. In other words, Jesus isn't criticizing or exposing the Old Testament. He is criticizing and exposing the teachings of the religious leaders in that day. See, after the Old Testament, there was a 400-year period. And during that 400-year period, you had the rise of different sects, the Pharisees being one of them, the Herodians, the scribes. And all these people came up essentially out of nowhere and uh, started to create their own interpretations of God's law, of God's word in the Old Testament. So what Jesus is doing here is he's not uh, exposing and unpacking uh, uh, the word of God, uncovering the word of God. He's exposing and uncovering their interpretation of the word of God. These men, with this topic and with every other topic we've looked at up to this point, essentially what they did is they've done is they, they were taking the law of God and they were putting their own spin on it. They were interpreting it in light of their own sinful desires and preferences. And specifically with this topic of oaths and promises and vows. Here's what had happened. By the time Jesus showed up on the scene, they have created this confusing and convoluted multi-tiered system for vows. And depending on what you swore on, the penalty was less. And in some cases, there was no penalty at all. So they created this multi-tier, super confusing, super convoluted system for which vows you had to keep in which vows you didn't have to keep, which vows were penalized and which vows were not penalized. So, so let me give you some examples of how ridiculous the, the system had gotten by the time Jesus arrives on the scene. If you swore by the altar, if you made an oath by the altar, you can break that oath. But if you made an oath or swore by the gift sacrifice on the altar, you had to keep the oath, okay? If you swore by Jerusalem, you didn't have to keep the oath. But if you swore towards Jerusalem, you had to keep the oath. If you swore by the temple, you didn't have to keep the oath. You wouldn't be penalized if you broke it. But if you swore by the gold on the temple or at the temple, you would have to keep the oath. That, that's how ridiculous this whole system had gotten. And, and the reality is the fact that they created one defeated the purpose of oaths. The purpose of an oath was for you to say, I am going to keep my word. And the fact that they were finding ways to get around that defeated the very purpose of why God even gave us oaths. They had gotten to a place where instead of protecting honesty, they were protecting dishonesty. Instead of promoting truthfulness, they were protecting deceitfulness. That is the, the scene that Jesus shows up on. That is how ridiculous the whole relationship with vows and with oaths had become. But what you see here in this passage is essentially what Jesus is arguing is this. It really doesn't matter at the end of the day what you swear by. Everything belongs to God. And since everything belongs to God, every oath you made you make is before God. That's why he says, he's like, it can't be heaven, it can't be earth, it can't be Jerusalem, it can't be anything. Because all of, it can't even be your own self, your own head, he says. Because you can't even change your hair from black to white. And he's not talking about people who dye their hair, okay? I know some of you, you know, you, 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 you've been dying for, for a while now, but, but he... But even those who dye their hair, eventually it's going to go right back to white, right? So, so, so Jesus says that the reason why we should not swear by anything is because everything belongs to God. That when you say, well, I'm not swearing to God, I'm swearing by the temple. It doesn't matter. All of it belongs to God. And so as a result, all of it is happening before the eyes of God. And if you look at what Jesus is arguing for here in this text, essentially what he's arguing for, the, 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 the point that he's trying to make is that humanity is so sinful. We lack so much character. We have 
so much depravity that this relationship with oaths is just another example of how broken we truly are. And if you look at the, the way Jesus argues, essentially the, the problem is not external, it's actually internal. The reason why we don't keep our promises, the reason why we don't keep our oaths, the reason why we overpromise, the reason, the reason why we the reason why we do that is because according to Jesus, we have sinful hearts. It's not just sinful conduct, it is a sinful condition. And it's been that way since Genesis 3. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, what you discover in scripture is that Satan shows up, and ironically, what he does is he makes a false promise. Right? He makes an oath. He says, You will not surely die. Go eat. Go do the very thing that God said. So he essentially calls the question God's promise, God's oath. He makes a false promise, a false oath. They believe it. And from that moment on, humanity has been marked by lying. We have been marked by dishonesty. We have been marked by broken vows and oaths. It all started back in Genesis chapter 3. And so by the time we get to Jesus' day, that's why it was such, a, such an issue. Why instead of them trying to uh, protect the truth, they instead were trying to protect their dishonesty and their deceitfulness. And if that's true back then, if that was true in Genesis and it's true in the first century, how much more true is it today? Like, like our culture is permeated by dishonesty. Our culture is characterized by broken promises and unmet obligations. And so even though in our culture it looks different, right, it's different fruit, I would argue that it's the same root. Even though in our culture we have different actions, I would argue that it stems from the same attitudes. But one commentator put it this way. He said that in our cultural moment, what we are struggling with is extremely wide credibility gaps. And here's what a, credi a credibility gap is. Uh, a credibility gap is the distance between your word and your walk. What you say you're going to do and what you actually do. You see, in our culture, we are lacking more than ever things like character, honesty, and integrity. And the reality is, I'm going to give you several examples. I'm going to start with nicer examples, right, that are more zoomed out, so then we can all agree, and then I'm going to zoom in and give you examples of how you do this, okay? Let me, let me zoom out first. We live in a culture now that a politician will get up during his campaign, and he's lying, and we know he's lying, and yet we still vote for him because we like him better than the other liar. So the politician gets up and says, here, read my lips. No tax increase. Vote for me, and there will be no tax increase. Six months later, the bill is signed, and taxes go up. And we don't even flinch because we knew he was lying. Right? That, that's how much dishonesty has permeated our culture. You think about how even news works now. You know, it used to be 20, 30 years ago that you would trust news outlets. Like you, you would trust that what you are listening to is actually unbiased information. See, but what's happened over the last several decades is now the people, whether depending on which side of the aisle you're on, you watch people and you know they're not giving you the full story. And here's the thing, you don't even want the full story. You want the story that's going to fit the greater narrative you're already believing. A lot of us, we, we go to these news channels, we go to these YouTube channels, to these personalities, these podcasts, not for information. We go for affirmation. Right? So you, you'll have two different news channels reporting on the same exact thing, and you're getting completely different angles to the point where you almost doubt if it's the same story they're reporting on. That's where we've gotten as a culture. And nobody's even shocked by it anymore. We just accept it. Hey, if I'm going to get lied to, I might as well be lied to by people who I like. That's, that's where we're at. And it's not just in the world. 
It's in the church. How many televangelists, you'll, you'll turn on your TV at night and they're promising riches and health, knowing full well that none of those things are promised in Scripture. Hey, call this number and I'll send you the, the healing oil or the, 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 the napkin I sneezed in. It'll cure your cancer without even flinching. And it's not just the televangelists, because it's easy to throw stones, but how many pastors, how many people in my role have told people, I will do this, and then don't do that? And they have broken their vows, and they have broken their promises to the Lord, to their spouse, to their church. I would argue that most church hurt flows directly from this issue, from leaders in my role who did not have the character and the integrity to keep their word. That is how bad this issue has gotten. And instead of it bothering us anymore, we've become numb to it. We just, we're swimming in the dishonesty. We're swimming in, in, literally we're in a culture where since truth is no longer objective truth, it's subjective truth. And your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. But when, when truth is no longer a standard given to us by God, we cannot be shocked when there is no integrity and character and oaths being kept. And then you even look at the fact that even in the church, there, you would think that because of us being the church and us being in Christ and us having the gospel in Ephesians 5, you would think that in church, marriages would be, at the very least, much better percentage-wise than the world. But there's just as much divorce inside the church as there is outside the church. Just as many vows being broken, oaths not being kept inside the church than it is outside the church. Not one statistical difference. So this is not just a worldly problem. This is a church problem. Like we are struggling with this right now. So those are the more zoomed out examples, okay? I'm gonna give you some more specific examples just to show you how this is not just a first century problem. This isn't just a Pharisee problem, but this is a modern day me problem, okay? Us problem. We tend to break vows and we tend to not keep our promises and we tend to be dishonest, not just in our relationship with ourselves, but in our relationship to God and in our relationship to others. So I'm going to give you examples of each. The, the first one I'm going to give you an example of is in our relationship to God. One of the people that we are dishonest with, one of the people who we regularly break our vows to and our oaths to is God. So let me give you an example, some examples of this. How many times have you left a sermon and you've said, God, this thing will never be the same in my life again? From here on out, I am breaking this habit. From here on out, I am starting this habit. God, I am going to start serving next week. God, I'm going to start giving next week during the discipleship series. God, I'm going to start discipling. I have not been living my life the right way. I'm going to start discipling. How many times have we left a service, heck, even a devotional time? A worship night, promising God something that we've never, ever thought of again, right? That, that's an example of how we break our promises and our covenants with God. Another one is this, and this is a very interesting one, because I don't see any biblical, uh, at least not a good biblical example of it. It's the, hey, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Hey, God, if you come through and heal my loved one, I'm all in from here on out. Hey, God, if you uh, provide this, the money for this bill, hey, God, if you bring my prodigal back, you'll have my whole heart. But here's what's crazy about that. Not only do we not then do the thing we told God we were going to do, but the fact that we are telling God he needs to do something more than giving us Jesus. I, I, read, a, I read a quote. I, I don't remember which Puritan said it, but he said, there's nothing we can do that breaks God's heart more than when we doubt his love. Because God gave you his son, and you're saying, that's not enough. 
So those are examples of how we break vows and covenants with God all the time. But we don't just lie to God. We also lie to other people. We also break promises and don't keep our oaths to other people. But we don't call it lying because lying is a strong word. We're not supposed to lie. We fabricate the lie, the truth, right? We manufacture the truth. We, we stretch it a little bit. We just, we're just shading the truth a little bit. No one's lying here, right? But for example, here's how we lie to other people. When a fellow believer, I can't tell you how many times in my ministry there are people, there are couples who I have asked, how are you? How are you? And every time, oh, we're good, we're good. And then literally overnight, their marriage is over, and they were struggling for years, and no one knew. Just, we're good, because that's what you say at church. We're good. Can't say anything else. What is this, a hospital for sinners? No way. We all have it together here. Right? Or social media is a great example of it. So, social media is the new holiday card. Here, here's what I mean. Uh, back in the day, people still do holiday cards now, right? But, but think about what usually your, your, Chris, your, your Christmas photos, whenever day, time of year you do it, 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 you're out there and it's either really hot or really cold, right? And the kids are a mess. You and your spouse are fighting. Um, you're sucking in your stomach. You're, 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 you, got, you, got, you got too much makeup on. You're sucking in your stomach. And the whole thing is a, is, is, is a fraud. It's a, it, it, nothing's true about it, Right? And you just happen to smile at the right time. Hey, we're going to do an action photo. We're just going to be walking through the fields. And you take a picture and you send it out and people are like, wow, what a, what a happy family. Look at that family. Wow. Oh, my gosh. What an incredibly united family. And little did anyone know it was World War III that day. That's what social media has become. It's become your daily holiday card now. Instead of waiting once a year for me to lie to you, now I can lie to you on a week-to-week basis. Right? You play with your kids for three minutes in a seven-day week, and that's the photo you take? You go on a date night after eight months, and that's the photo you take? And everyone thinks, oh, my gosh, what an amazing couple right there. Wow. See, that, that's all social media has done. This has given us more opportunities to mislead. Here's the thing. In in our relationships, uh, we tend to exaggerate, right? We tend to overpromise. We tend to misrepresent the truth sometimes. We tend to withhold certain things. This is a big one, and especially in the church, we tend to betray confidences. So we'll look someone in the eye and say, no one will ever know about this. It's safe with me. And then before you know it, prayer request time. Hey, did you know about so-and-so? Oh, pray for her. My goodness. Right? When we betray confidences. We, we make commitments that we can't keep. Heck, we make commitments that we know we're not going to keep. So, so the, 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 there's an emotional call to serve, and you sign knowing full well you're not going to do it. But you feel bad, and you don't want to be the only person that doesn't sign. But you know you're not going to do it. You just don't want to look bad. Right? And then after the fact, then we make false excuses that aren't true. Oh, I, you know, so-and-so was, you know, couldn't do it. It was busy. Or, you know, my, my wife, what can I do? Right? Make up stuff that isn't even true for why we didn't do the thing we knew we were never going to do. And we break promises, let's be honest, a lot of times to the people who are closest to us. So the spouse that tells uh, the other spouse, hey, I'll be home at 530. Get, get dinner ready. I'll be there. Get ready. I'll be there. Right? Or the spouse tells the other spouse, hey, we'll be, we'll be intimate this week at some point. I promise. Those are all examples of things that we, we just don't tell the truth. I'm not even saying that in those moments we don't mean to keep those. I'm not saying we're being deceitful on purpose. But when we don't do what we say we're going to do, We're lying. We're breaking promises. Our yes is not yes. Our no is not no. Even with our kids. I know know that I have broken promises with my daughters. 
Because I rarely tell them I'm going to do something where they're not like, pinky promise. Are you, dad, are you sure? You promise? My daughter shouldn't have to do that. But they have to do that because there's been so many times where I get distracted or forget or come to whatever the thing is and say, no, I'm not doing it. Another one that's big with other people is unforgiveness. When we tell people we've forgiven them and we, have, we haven't, oh, yeah, oh, it's all forgiven. I've moved on. I'm going to bring it up in every argument we have for the next decade, but I'm over it. All forgiven here. No, it's not forgiven. Like, you're, you're lying. Like, you're, you, you're saying you did something or that you've dealt with something that you haven't actually dealt with. Or we exaggerate in fights. Like, we... We will tell the, the, the spouse or we'll tell our kids or whoever it is that will exact, well, you never do this. Or you always do that. Knowing full well that that's not a true statement, but, but we're trying to win an argument. We're not trying to speak truth. And the last person we lie to, our, lie to uh, oh, real quick about the promise towards others. Here, here's the worst thing we can do, but we do it all the time, and I'm guilty of this too. Instead of just repenting from the broken promise, and like Jesus says, just letting our yes be yes and our no be no and prove it with our walk, we just make more promises. Oh, I just broke. Sorry, I didn't keep that promise. You know what I got for you? Another promise. Like there's people in your life who they don't even believe you anymore. You've lost all credibility. Like there's people in my life who, there's people in my family who their word means nothing to me. Oh, you're going to be there? All right, cool, man. Oh, you're going to do that? Hey, get someone else to do that. Leah ain't going to do it. That's what happens when we don't let our yes be yes and our no be no. And then let me give you the last person we lie to. The last person we lie to is ourselves. A very clear way of how we lie to each other is New Year's resolutions. This is the year. I'm going to stop overeating, overspending, oversleeping, whatever you're overdoing, overwatching. And a month in, you're right back to whatever you were doing. I think that one of the things about um, lying to ourselves is that there are times where we make commitments, and I don't I, I saying we don't mean well, but we know, we know that we're lying to ourselves. Like, we know. There's a part of us that, 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 like that knows. And here's the thing. Because of all the other examples I just gave you, people who have not kept their word in your life, some of us have commitment phobia now. We have been hurt. So maybe we came from a divorced family. So now we don't ever want to get married ourselves because we're fearful that we're going to get divorced. Maybe someone in your life has betrayed your trust. Well, then you're going to be a lot less likely to commit later on because you've been hurt, right? Or maybe you have just broken so many vows and promises and oaths that you're just tired of feeling like a terrible person. So now you just don't commit to anything. If I don't commit to anything, I can't let God down, others down, and can't let me down. So those are the people who are impacted by our lying and by our lack of oath-keeping. And let me say one more thing before we move on to the next point. What's ironic about our culture is that our culture is so accustomed to lying. It's just the air that we breathe. But even in our culture, even in the most secular, worldly, dishonest cultures, truth is needed. There's a desire for truth. So, so even in our culture, if you're in the court of law, it's the one place where the Bible is still allowed. You put your hand on that Bible because we need absolute truth here. So the culture doesn't believe in truth at all, now requires absolute truth because you are a testifying witness. Isn't that crazy? Even in mobs and in the gangs, like a mob, a mob boss, a, a gang leader has no problem lying to anyone. But even within their circles, they demand complete and total honesty because they know that without honesty, the whole thing falls apart. And that's the weird relationship that our culture has with truth and with oaths and with character. They, they do everything that tears it down, 
but then they desperately want it. So there's no such thing as absolute truth, but you better be absolutely truthful when I need you. Right? That's the culture we live in. And so I came across this quote uh, by C.S. Lewis. This was written back in 1943. It's almost 80 years ago. This is one of my favorite authors. And Lewis wrote this in easily his hardest book. This is the hardest C.S. Lewis book, uh, which is saying a lot. And his book, The Abolition of Man, this is one of the few quotes that I actually understood. Um, here's what he says about his culture, which is still true of our culture. Listen to this quote. He says, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. That's the cultural moment that we are in. All truth is relative until it's not. We're all for sexual freedom until there's a sexual scandal. That's how our culture is with sex. Everybody does it until, no, you're the only one that does it. They get real religious real quick. So that is how oaths and dishonesty and lack of character impact the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. So that is the breaking of oaths. Now, the next thing I want to look at this morning is I want to look at the making of oaths, the making of oaths. And uh, to do that, uh, I'm going to reread for you 36 and 37 from Matthew 5. Jesus says, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So the, the second thing that we see here in this passage is we see the making of oaths. Now, here's the thing. You would think that after the first point, I would say all oaths are bad. You should never make any oaths, any vows under any circumstance. See, but the reality is, is that not all oaths and vows are bad. And the reason why we know that is because all throughout the Bible, we see people taking oaths. We see people taking vows. So, for example, we see Abraham do it. We see Jacob do it. We see David do it. And then in the New Testament, we see Paul do it. Even Jesus in Matthew 26, Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, and he speaks under oath when the high priest demands him to, Right? And we'll talk about that passage more in a little bit. But then, even God, the Father, we see God, the Father, again and again, make covenants and make vows and make oaths all throughout Scripture. So what we see is that it's not a bad thing. Oaths are not bad. They're not evil. We are evil because he says that everything that is more than yes or no comes from evil. Jesus says that. But oaths in themselves are not evil. They are a good thing. So even in our cultural moment, in, in the world that we live in, we see vows and oaths being taken when you get married. You see vows and oaths being done when you're speaking in the court of law. Uh, we see it when someone becomes a partner or a member at a church. Uh, we see it in baptism, when the person commits to follow Jesus. We see it in ordination. When I was ordained, there are certain vows that, that come, oaths that come with becoming an ordained minister. We see this with police officers. We see this with soldiers. So not all vows and all oaths are bad. They're not bad things. We are bad people, but they are not bad oaths. There is still space for oaths in our culture. So, so if Jesus is not saying that all oaths are bad, then what type of oaths is he talking about? Well, the a helpful distinction uh, comes from Dr. William Hendrickson, uh, he says this about what specific type of oaths Jesus is talking about. He says, what we have here in Matthew 5, 33 through 37, and then he refers to James 5, 12, because James in, in James 5, he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's quoting his half-brother Jesus. He says, what we have here in Matthew 5, 33 through 37, is the condemnation, listen to this, of the flippant profane, uncalled for, and often hypocritical oaths used in order to make an impression 
or to spice daily conversation. Over against that evil, Jesus commands or commends simple truthfulness in thought, word, and deed. So he's not talking about all oaths in general, but the flippant, profane, uncalled for, hypocritical ones that we are so prone to make. That's what Dr. Henderson says. Now, here's the thing. In, in, under the second point, what I want to talk to you about is essentially there are two reasons why we as followers of Jesus, and again, if you are not a follower of Jesus, a, 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 a disciple of Jesus, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond at the end and, and place your faith in Jesus today. But the Sermon on the Mount is written to disciples. It's written to people who are in Christ, who are following Jesus. And if you are someone who is following Jesus, there are two reasons why you have to be very careful with the oaths that you make. Two reasons why there's, you, your life should not actually have that many oaths, that many vows. The first reason is because of the presence of character. If you're taking notes, write these down. The first reason is because of the presence of character. And the second reason is because of the absence of control. So as followers of Jesus, we should not be marked by many vows and many oaths and many promises because of the presence of character, one, and because of the absence of control, two. So let's look at the first one. The first reason is because of the presence of character. And here's what I mean. Jesus in this passage says this. He says that as a follower of him, as a believer in him, your life should be so marked by character and by integrity that your yes should be yes and your no should be no. In other words, you should live such a life where there is such a close relationship between your words and your walk that you don't even need to make oaths. You don't even need to make vows. You don't even need to make promises because of your character. If you are a follower of Jesus and you vow something or you say, I will do something, and the person's response is, hey, can I get that in writing? You do not have integrity. You do not have character. You have created a track record where the person is making the assumption you're not going to keep whatever you're saying you're going to keep. So that's the first reason why vows and oaths and promises shouldn't be needed, because of the presence of character, because of the presence of integrity. Now, the word integrity, it's an interesting word because it comes from the word integer. And for those of you who know math, an integer is a whole number. It's the opposite of a fra of fraction. So Jesus says, your life should not be fractured at all. You should be the same person everywhere you go. At work, at church, at home, in private. There should be an integer, not a fraction. You should be the same person everywhere you go. That's what Jesus is getting after. So when a follower of Jesus, get this, and I don't care if you're in your teens, in your 20s, or your 70s. When a follower of Jesus says, yes, that doesn't mean maybe. That doesn't mean probably. That doesn't even mean hopefully. It means yes. Like I am going to do the thing I said I'm going to do. And when a follower of Jesus says no, which some of us have to learn how to say no, Jesus gives us permission to say no, right? When we say no, it's not a maybe, it's not a probably, it's not a hopefully, it's no. I'm not doing it. That's what Jesus is getting after. That for a follower of him, there are no levels to truth. There's just truth. And if I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And if I say I'm not going to do it, then I'm not going to do it. That's it. And my character should be such that you know I mean what I say. That's what Jesus is getting after. Which is why when I started working on this passage this week, I remember thinking, man, this is going to be like, we're taking this week off. This is like the lame week, right? Not, not, not a lot going on here. But then when I realized that what Jesus is actually getting after is our conduct, or in our, the, the character underneath that conduct, I realized this is way more applicable than I ever thought. Because are we living the type of life where our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our spouse and our children 
hear us say something, and they take us at our word. That's what Jesus is getting after. In Psalm 51, when David is confessing to God after his sin with Bathsheba, David says, you, talking about God, he says, God, you desire truth in my innermost being. So you don't desire just truth on the outside, my behavior, but you desire truth in my innermost being. Jesus says that a disciple's word should be as good as their bond, it should be as good as their oaths, and it should be as good as their vows. That our spoken word should be as strong as our written word in a contract. That anytime we say yes or no, it is as if we are putting our hands on a stack of Bibles and saying, I will do what I said I'm going to do. That is what Jesus is calling us to do. And here's the thing. If that's true, that that's what we are called to be, that this demands a presence of character, then I would argue that knowing when to say yes and knowing when to say no and having permission from Jesus to do that, it actually allows us to distinguish between what we are capable of and what we are called to. This is something that I love teaching on because I think we fall into the lie that the world teaches. The world says that whatever you are capable of up here is what you should do. Right? The world says you should do everything to your capacity. Not to your calling, but to your capacity. That's not what God says. God says you are to do everything not according to your capacity, but according to your calling. And there's always a gap between what you are capable of and what God has called you to. And here's why. Because in every area of your life, let's say we're talking about marriage or parenting or work or ministry or discipleship. In every area, the reason why there's always a gap between what you're capable of and what you're called to is because God's not just calling you to be an employee. God's not just calling you to be a parent. He's not just calling you to be a spouse. He's not just calling you to be a disciple maker. He's calling you to do all these things. And so the reason why there's always a gap in every area of your life between what you're capable of and what you're called to is because God's calling you to do other things. He's not just calling you to make as much money as you can. He's also calling you to be a healthy father and a healthy spouse and a healthy Christian and a disciple maker. But if in any area of our life we try to meet our capacity instead of our calling, we end up taking away from other areas in our life that we've been called to do things. So let me make this very clear, okay? In Scripture, there are very specific things that God calls us to do. So one of the things that God calls us to do in light of Acts 2, in light of Hebrews 10, is to be in community. That's a calling. That's not a, that's not a, a, a hey, if you have time. It, it's a calling. And get this, community does not mean Sunday morning. So if you think you're checking the box as you come to church, that's not, it's actual life-on-life community according to Hebrews 10. That's one thing we're commanded to do. That's our calling. Another thing that we're called to do in Scripture is we are called to serve. Serve. So those spiritual gifts that you've been given are not just used in your workplace, but they are used in the church. According to 1 Peter chapter 4, according to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the gifts that we've been given are to serve the body. Another calling. Not even a question. If you, have, if you, don't, you don't agree with that, send me the verse that, that tells me that's wrong, okay? Another thing that we're called to do, and people aren't going to like this one, we're called to give financially. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul tells the church to give. In Matthew chapter 6, which is the, the passage in a few weeks, Jesus calls us to give. That's what we're called to. It's not, hey, if, 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 you, if you have time, send a few dollars my way, Jesus says. No, no, we are called to give, right? And here's the last one. We're called to make disciples. And the reason why my life has radically changed over the past uh, two years was because for a long time I did the first three, but I wasn't doing the last one. And when I decided that I was going to take Matthew 28 seriously, that I was going to take 2 Timothy chapter 2 seriously, my life changed because it takes time. It, it, it's a commitment to actually make disciples. So those are the four things. And there's more, but those are the primary things. Community, serving, giving, disciple making. Listen, if in your life you can't say yes to those things, that's probably because you're saying yes to things that you don't, you shouldn't be saying yes to. You're so busy doing the world's will that you don't have time to do the Lord's will. And this is what I mean by the gap between capacity and calling. If we honored God's margins, 
if we honor the fact that he's calling us just to do this, think about it. How many things are you doing right now that God hasn't called you to, you're just capable of? And when you say yes to the things God is not calling you to do, then you can't say yes to the things he's actually calling you to do. And in, in, in the first three seem very selfish. Like, oh, that's just a pastor asking for my serving and for my giving. No, discipleship has actually nothing to do with what happens here on a Sunday morning. I'm going to go to growth track here in a few minutes at our other campus to talk to the people who are becoming partners. And I'm going to say to them, hey, you know what I want more than just a few dollars in a few hours? I want you to make a disciple. I want you to go multiply yourself. Not, not, not because it's me, but because that's what Jesus says. That's not done programmatically. That's done from person to person. And when we say no, yes to things that Jesus didn't call us to do, we don't have the space to say yes to the things he's actually called us to do. That's what we see. That, that, that is the balance. That, there's people in this room who have to say no to certain things in order to say yes to certain things. And the last thing is this. This is the last reason why we should be careful. It's not just because of the, it's not just because of the presence of character, because we are people of high character. But the other reason is not just that. It's the absence of control. And here's what I mean by the absence of control. Jesus in the passage says, you shouldn't even swear by your own head. You shouldn't even swear by yourself. Forget about Jerusalem. Forget about heaven. Forget about the temple. You shouldn't even swear by yourself. Why? Because Jesus says, you have an absence of control. Not even you belong to you. You don't. You, you, you can't, Jesus says. He, he literally says, if there's one thing a disciple knows is that they are not God that they belong to God. They belong to God because of creation, because God made us, but they also belong to God because of salvation, because God purchased us, the Bible says. And that's why James 4, in James 4, James says, don't make plans willy-nilly and says, I'll be here next week and I'll be there a year from now and I'll do this later on. James says, who are you to make plans? To say, I will do this and will do that. He says, with everything you do, there better be a Lord willing on it because you don't even know if you're gonna be here tonight let alone a year from now, right? So when, when, when parents are talking about, oh, I can't wait till, you know, so-and-so gets married, uh, if you're there, we, we have no right to say, oh, I, I'm swearing by myself, on myself. No, no. Jesus says that the very hair on your heads you have no control over. We as Christians should say, Lord willing, to everything. I remember when I started taking that verse seriously, I would tell people, hey, I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. And they were so unaccustomed to hearing that phrase that they would be like, so are you coming or are you not? Because Lord willing seems like you're being flaky. No, I'm not being flaky. I'm being biblical. Because I don't know if I'm going to be there tomorrow. I give you my word, but I can't give you anything else. Because I don't know what I'm going to do a week from now. You know, over the last several years, it's funny, like my prayers have changed as I pray for my sermons. I used to just say, hey, Lord, can't wait for Sunday. And now I literally, one, one Sunday, I remember a couple Sundays, I've lost my voice. So now I pray, Lord, I pray that I have a voice. A couple Sundays, one Sunday, my grandfather died. If you guys remember that a, few, a couple years ago. I pray, Lord, keep my loved ones safe. Like the, literally, I keep adding things to my prayer. Like keep me healthy. Keep my voice healthy. Keep my family healthy. Because I have no control. We all have the illusion of control. I had one of our elders tell me this the other day. He was having some issues with one of his family members, and he said, you know what I've learned? That, because we were talking about what Martin Luther says about the first commandment, that if you break, uh, in order to break commandments two through ten, you first have to break the first commandment, which is do not commit uh, idolatry. He said, every morning that I wake up and I think I have control over my day, and I don't put a Lord willing on the whole day, I have already broken the first commandment. I have already replaced God. I have already said, God, I got this. And if I need you, we'll talk. That is how much of an illusion we have of control. So that's what we see. That's why we have to be careful with the oaths that we make. Because of the presence of character, but also because of the absence of control. Now, the final thing I want to look at as we conclude this morning 
We've seen the breaking of oaths. We've seen the making of oaths. And I want to conclude today by looking at the keeping of oaths. Now, here's the thing about the keeping of oaths. Out of all the topics that we've looked at up to this point in this series, like I mentioned earlier, this one to me seemed like the least serious one. Like, hey, you know, nobody wants to lie, right? But at least I'm not murdering anybody. At least I'm not committing adultery. And we have this tendency to rate and rank our sins. But here's the thing. Here's the, the big problem with ranking things and saying, oh, this is not, this one's not, you know, the adultery, lusting after someone, that, that's bad. But lying to somebody, sometimes you just got to do it. You know, you're not in my line of work. How, am I, how else am I going to make sales, right? We, we tend to minimize this topic. But here's the problem. The problem is that when you look at the Old Testament, there are three different references to oaths in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy. And in two of them, we're told that when we break an oath, a sacrifice needs to be made at the temple. That's best case scenario. But the worst case scenario in one of them is that if you don't keep the oath, you die. So best case scenario, a sacrifice needs to be made. Worst case scenario, you are the sacrifice. That's how seriously God takes our word. That's how seriously God takes oaths. So at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what we think of them, what we think of oaths and character and being honest. What matters more is what God thinks of them. It's what God says about them. And so if that's true, that anyone who breaks a covenant, anyone who breaks an oath, everyone who, who overpromises and underdelivers, if that's true in the Old Testament that it's a sacrifice at best, at best and it's death at worst, and then the question is, what hope do we have? Like, like, where do we go? Well, here's what's interesting about Scripture. Essentially, what God and his law demand is this. They demand us to be oath keepers. The problem is, we are not oath keepers. We are oath breakers. But here's what's beautiful about the gospel. God, the ultimate oath maker, saw what we've done. So God's the oath maker. He saw what we've done, the oath breakers. And what he did in response is he sent an oath keeper. And the oath keeper that he sent was not me. It was not you. It was Jesus. God sent an oath keeper in response to the oath breakers. And what's beautiful about the gospel, which is what I'm referring to here, is that we see this gospel story play out not just in the New Testament with Peter, but we see it play out in the Old Testament with Abraham. We see this gospel story, God sending the oath keeper to die in the place of the oath breakers. We see it both in the life of Abraham and we see it in the life of Peter. The first place we see it, though, is we see it in the life of Abraham. If you go back to Genesis 15, you don't have to turn there now, but in Genesis 15, Abraham is starting to have his doubts. In Genesis 12, God made him a covenant, and the years keep passing. He keeps getting older, and Abraham is starting to doubt God, rightly so. Still no son, still barren, and God shows up, and he essentially recommits himself to Abraham. He makes the oath again. He makes the vow again. He reestablishes the covenant. And then he says something to Abraham that if we don't, didn't know any better, it would be this really weird request. He says, Abraham, to prove to you that I'm going to do what I say, I want you to go get a heifer. I want you to go get a goat, a ram, and two types of birds. He's like, okay. So then in Genesis 15, we see Abraham, and he goes and gets the heifer, the ram, and the goat. And we're told, from our context, it seems really confusing, he takes those three animals and he splits them in half. He tears them in half. And he just sits there waiting on God. And you're like, what the heck is going on? Well, here's the thing. In those days, because this wasn't a written culture, it was an oral culture, 
whenever you made a, a vow, especially a serious one, you would take an animal and you would split it in half. And both people who were in the covenant or in the oath would walk through. And here's what you were saying. If either of us break this covenant, if either of us break this vow, what happens to this animal happens to me. That's how serious it was. If I break this oath, I will be the one torn in half. I will be the one ripped apart. But what's interesting, if you look at the story in Genesis, Abraham never gets a chance to walk through. It says that God, this darkness came over Abraham. And it says that he became drowsy and fell asleep, essentially. And then when he comes to, he sees a vision, and the only person that goes through the carcasses is God. The only one. Abraham never gets a chance to make his oath, to make his vow, to make his commitment. And the question is, why? Why did God not allow Abraham to go through the carcass? Or carcasses, because it was three. The reason why God does not allow Abraham to do it is because here's essentially what God was saying. God was saying, as you, if you, Abraham, at some point break it, break this covenant, break this oath, do not keep your side of the, uh, of the promise. It's not you. Not only am I taking my responsibility, I'm taking your responsibility too. God is the only one that walked through so that if either party ever violated the covenant, he would be the one that would be torn in half. He would be the one that would be split in two. He took the full burden of the covenant on him. So the question is this, why does God do this? Why does God willingly walk through knowing full well what was going to happen to him? Knowing full well that Abraham and his descendants were never going to be able to keep this covenant. There's two reasons. The first reason why God does it is because of his glory. But the second reason why God does it is because of his grace. The first reason why God does this is because of his glory. See, the reason why God is the only one that walks through and the reason why he swears by his own name is because there's no greater name for him to swear by. Look what it says in Hebrews 6. The author of Hebrew is looking back at this story of Abraham in Genesis 15. And it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which, it is, in which it is impossible for God to lie, get this, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So according to Hebrews 6, the reason why God swears by his name, the reason why God swears by his own authority is because there was no greater name. There was no greater authority. There was no greater jurisdiction. There was no greater counsel. There was no greater power. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. And he is the name above all names. That's why God did it. But that's not the only reason. He didn't just do it for his glory. He also did it for his grace. He also did it because of his grace. Why? Because Ab he knew. He knew Abraham. He knew the people of Israel. He knew that none of these people were ever going to do what they said they were going to do. But God did it because of his grace, knowing full well that one day it wouldn't be Abraham who would be torn into. It would be Jesus who would be torn into. It would be Jesus who would be ripped apart. It would be Jesus who would have to foot the bill. It would be Jesus who would have to meet the, the requirements. God did it full well knowing that it wasn't going to be Isaac on some mountain. On Mount Moriah, it was going to be Jesus on Mount Calvary. And yet he still made the covenant. And what's beautiful about the gospel church is that when you see what he does here, uh, he doesn't, God doesn't offer, get this. Remember what we said, he tells Abraham, he says, I need you to go get a heifer. I need you to go get a goat. I need you to go get a ram. 
But what's interesting is that at the cross, God didn't offer up a heifer, a goat, or a ram. He offered up the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at the cross, what we see is that Jesus Christ, he met the requirements we couldn't meet. He checked the boxes that we couldn't check. He lived up to the standards we couldn't live up to. He took the burden that we couldn't carry. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. And that's what I love about the ministry of Jesus. Because Jesus was God, you never see him having to take an oath. You never see him having to swear by anything greater than him. This is why the, the, the people of the day were so fascinated by him, because they, they didn't know what to do with him. He spoke with an authority that no one else spoke with. So when you look at all the different promises that Jesus makes, he didn't have to say, I swear to God, because there was nothing to swear by. He was God. So, so when Jesus says, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, that is a promise. When he says two or three, any, when two or three gather in my name, I will be among you, that is a promise. When Jesus, at the beginning of the, 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 uh, of the Great Commission, he says to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, that is a promise. At the end of the Great Commission, when he says, all, uh, uh, behold, I am with you to the very end of the age, that is a promise, church. And the one time, the one time Jesus spoke under oath, it's probably the most beautiful oath that's ever been made in Scripture. Because the high priest looks at Jesus and he demands Jesus to say, are you the Christ or are you not? And once he's put under oath, it's almost like Jesus waits to be put under oath. And he says, not only is that the case, as you have said, but I will be at the right hand of the Father, and one day I will come down on the clouds to bring victory. That is the one oath Jesus made. That is how good our Savior is. Amen? And we also see it in the life of Peter. See, in the life of Peter, you have this moment where Peter literally looks at Jesus and says, even if everyone else scatters, I will never scatter. I will never betray you, Jesus. I am here for you. And Jesus says, not only will you betray me, but you'll actually deny me three times before the rooster crows. And sure enough, in his moment of testing, you see him break. So Peter, in his moment of testing, broke. Jesus, in his moment of testing, was broken. Peter, in his moment of testing, essentially had the sinfulness of his heart exposed. Jesus, in his moment of testing, saw, essentially allowed us to see the righteousness of his heart. In his moment of testing, Peter feared man more than he feared God. In his moment of testing, Jesus feared God more than he feared man. And you know the reason why God doesn't kill Peter on the spot? Because one day, literally a few hours later, Jesus would die in Peter's spot. Peter didn't pay the price because Jesus would pay the price. Jesus didn't take the wrath because Jesus would take his wrath. Peter didn't carry the burden because Jesus would carry the burden. And the most beautiful part about this story, and if you're like me and like Peter, where you have broken promises, where you have not kept your word, is that Jesus doesn't just redeem Peter, he restores him. He doesn't just save him, he searches him out. He doesn't just change Peter's heart, he encourages Peter's heart. He doesn't just embrace the sinner, he emboldens and empowers the leader because we're told, get this, after Jesus resurrects, he walks up to the seaside and Peter's out on a boat. And when they come back in, him and Peter go off by themselves. And here's the beautiful thing of it. When Peter was in the courtyard, he was by a fire, and he denied Jesus three times. Jesus takes Peter to a new fire. They're standing by the fire. And three times he says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Jesus literally redid and undid what Peter had ruined. He denied him three times by a fire, so Jesus had him affirm him three times by a fire. That is how good our Savior is. So the only way we can respond to a sermon like this, the only way, church, that we can respond to a sermon like this 
is not with more religious promises. The only way we can respond is by repenting and by resting in the redemptive promises of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace. And I thank you that you have, in your grace, have decided to walk through the carcasses. You have decided to be, by your grace, torn in half, ripped apart, take the burden in our place. And God, I pray that for all the people in this room, including me, who are very much like Peter, where we overpromise and we underdeliver and we don't keep our word and we have betrayed not just others and ourselves, but ultimately you. And we deserve to be sacrificed, to be put to death. I thank you that not only do you save us, but you restore us and you give us the opportunity to affirm you again. And I thank you that our relationship with you is not based on how much we love you, but it's based on how much you love us. It's not based on how much we keep our side of the promise, but by how much you've kept your side of the promise. Thank you for that promise and for that reality. And I pray right now, Lord, for the people in this room who maybe don't know you, for the people over at East Memphis who don't have a relationship with you. As people come up to pray for prayer partners, Lord, I pray that they would today respond to you by faith, that they would place their faith in you as their Lord and their Savior. And for the people here who feel like they have disqualified themselves because of their lack of integrity or character, I pray that they would come up and receive prayer and understand that in the gospel, we are not just redeemed, but we are restored. Lord, we love you, and we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.